Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Pascucci, and today marks a significant moment for the Cinematography Salon podcast as we reach the season one finale after 18 incredible episodes. Before we delve into today's episode, I have some important news to share. My co-host and friend, Oren Sofer, will be pivoting away from the show to focus on promoting his upcoming film, The Creator, which is set to release on September 29th. The idea for the show began at the start of this year when I pitched it to Oren, and his support and collaboration has been super instrumental in shaping the show. We're really grateful to Oren for his involvement in season one, and the good news is this isn't farewell. Oren will return as a guest on a future episode where we'll interview him on the making of The Creator. So while we say goodbye to Oren for now, we're really excited for his upcoming interview. Since this marks the end of season one, we're going to take a short hiatus from the show, and we're excited to restart season two at the beginning of October, featuring a new co-host that will be announced soon. To mark the end of season one, we are incredibly excited and honored to welcome a truly legendary cinematographer to our show. Thanks to Oren for connecting us and allowing us to welcome Mandy Walker, ASC, ACS to the show today. Mandy, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Mandy has shot major, major blockbuster films, including Mulan, Hidden Figures, and Elvis, the latter of which earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography. And earlier this year, she became the first woman to win the American Society of Cinematographers Award in the feature film category for Elvis. Mandy, we wanted to, in our usual fashion, just sort of dive in. And I was really curious to hear you talk about your techniques for exposure. I've heard you mention in the past how you like to expose the digital image similar to how you expose film. I think it's a really valuable lesson for so many aspiring DPs to to understand that technique. And I wanted to kind of peel back the curtain and hear about an experience that you mentioned of shooting a documentary in Vietnam on film and how it taught you so much about trusting film latitude, becoming confident in exposure choices. And yeah, if if you're able to just talk a little bit about that experience. Well, when I first started shooting, we were only shooting on film. So the way that I learned how to expose was by learning how to use a light meter and going to the lab and looking at the results, you know. So, and in Australia, they have a one, what's called a one light work print. So the, our dailies were not color timed. They had the set lights that you had to get hit right in the middle. So if you were overexposed something or underexposed something, you would go in there and see it. So testing was really important. And then I also learned by using the zone system, the Ansel Adams zone system, the grayscale of white to black. And then I would do my tests, seeing with, you know, different film stocks, when it would start to blow out in white and when I would lose detail in black. And then I would relay that to my spot meter. So the other thing was that I did always overexpose a negative by at least two-thirds of a stop to give the negative what they called more information and I'd have more information in the shadows. But because film handles highlights better than shadows, it goes to white much later than it goes to black. It's the opposite to digital because digital you have more information in the shadows than you do on film. And so things like on film, it always actually surprises me. Like, you know, for instance, when I did that documentary, like you said, I went to Vietnam for five weeks and I was shooting on 16 mil and I had no camera assistant, no grip, no electrics, no one but me. I was loading the mags, doing all the dailies, changing my lenses, exposing the film, and I didn't see anything for five weeks. I saw not one image. 
And it was then I kind of learned that exposure kind of comes from trusting my instincts, you know, because you can take a reading, but sometimes you're shooting something that's far away or a, a sky that's really bright and your foreground's darker and how do you balance that and that's what I learned and I just learned by using my gut and intuition and and what I'd already learned so by the time I'd shot that movie after that I found it so much easier like I could guess exposures a lot day exterior I could pretty much guess them all the time if I was familiar with the film stock I was using. But I do approach digital the same. Like I I make sure there's information in the shadows. So a lot of the time I will rate the camera, say, at, at a lower ISO and then bring it down in my CDL or in our LUT. And so that when I go back, I make sure I hold on to the highlights. I find in my testing where I'm holding on to the highlights, but I'm giving as much information in the shadows as I can because I don't like to get into the DI and have to lift things. You can always make something darker, but to make it lighter, you can get into trouble with noise and such. So I do that. I always do that. And sometimes on night scenes, I'll go even further and go a stop or more than a stop and bring it down in the CDL. So the information's there. Such a good point that digital reacts 180 degrees opposite of film in terms of the way it retains information. It was definitely like an aha moment for me listening back. And yeah, I think that, I don't know, a documentary shot on film specifically seems like exposure boot camp for a DP, right? Because so often we go to the DIT or we talk to the gaffer and we have our assistant to double check us. But in the environment of a doc on film, you're just, everything is stripped away and it's literally just you and the light meter in the film. And yeah, that specific experience of how you weren't able to see it and you weren't able to see dailies and how it all worked is such a testament, I think, to how amazing film is and how it often just aligns with your gut instinct for exposure. And I think because it wasn't the first thing I'd shot. I'd shot a couple of feature films before that. So I was familiar with the film stock. But even, you know, when I did, I did a film called Tracks, which was shot on film, I think it's about 10 years ago. That was 35 mil anamorphic and we're in the desert and it wasn't a huge movie it was pretty low budget but we're shooting 35 as I was saying and I again I was in the middle of nowhere and I didn't have dailies I was getting stills from the the dailies that were getting sent back by courier so three or four days later and the thing that really always surprises me about film is that thing of holding on to the highlights and even though I'm overexposing it there were some skies and I'd read it on my light meter and go well that's blown out and then I'd get in the DI and there's information there. And and I really like that about film. It does have an incredible latitude. And also, I mean, you call it dynamic range in, in, in digital, but that's what film has. It has a huge dynamic range, also in terms of colour. Like this, I still think there's more colour in film than in digital. Absolutely. So, Mandy, we wanted to ask you a little bit about lighting, a favourite topic for DPs. Reading about your work on Elvis, you described working with your lighting programmer to create kind of 360-degree lighting environments and shift the lighting dynamically depending on what direction the camera was facing to sort of keep Elvis backlit always. And also, you and I have discussed this before, using this technique on other films as well, sort of when you're pre-lighting a set or a stage build, that you're sort of already thinking ahead about the different camera angles that you might end up playing on a scene and pre-planning like what the lighting would look like in each direction in the in the pre-light phase so that on set the switchovers from angle to angle are actually really quick and dynamic can you talk a little bit about that approach and your sort of overall philosophy about lighting 360 and using dynamic lighting to keep contrast ratios consistent and interesting mm-hmm. 
depending on the camera angles. I'll start with on Elvis because we had to shoot some concert sequences that are existing footage, you know, like, for instance, the 68 special, which I think is a good example of that, which was in a TV studio studio in the 60s, in 68, and the lighting on the document, on the actual footage is pretty harsh and horrible, and it's tungsten front lit and it's really toppy because the lights are out of shot and so there's dark shadows under his eyes, there's no fill, there's, you know. So whatever. whenever I did that kind of as a rule during Elvis, what I wanted to do was replicate that so it was the same kind of style and it fit in with the time and the look of the time, but I also wanted to make it more complementary. So I was writing this kind of thin line of not going too far away from what it actually looked like, but making it more cinematic, even a word, or, or making sure that it was more aesthetic. And so writing the backlight was something, and I do it all the time now. I've done it on the last few films, actually. If you get someone who's great on the board and you have enough backlight round, so normally I would have 360 degrees, that as the camera's moving and you're chasing the, the backlight, you don't see it. And you can't notice it so much unless you actually know that it's there and you'll watch it back and study it. But it blends in if it's done in the right way. But I also, I think when I was doing Australia with Baz, this was the first big film that I did, was I always, I just wanted to be really prepared for anything. And even though he's very organised and he'll rehearse and let us know what's happening sometimes you know if we've done what we planned and then he said well how about we just spin the crane around and we look that way I would I want to be able to say yeah of course just give me 10 minutes and I'm there rather than having to put new lights up and I did it on Mulan and I've just done on my last film I I make it so that the time is spent in the pre-light and the money spent in the pre-light to save time on set which is a huge saving when you think about it. Like if someone has to wait two hours for me to turn the set around, it's time and money on the whole production. And on Mulan, the other thing was Nikki had said to me really early on, I don't like having a lot of lights on set. I like them to be outside, so to give the actors a space and to make it so that if we do move a little bit, you know, further around or whatever, it's going to be open. So a lot of the lights I had on that set were up in the gantry or the reds or the perms, whatever you call them, whatever country you're in, and they would be able to lower down, come down and be at 10-foot height if I needed if it was out of shot or come down 20 foot and it was over to the side and they're on chain motors or they're on ropes, but they could adjust, always be adjusted and tilt really quickly. Yeah, so I've tried to make it part of my working and I think even on a small set I do the same, you know, that if we're in a house and... We're not planning so much to look and see that window, but I would have a light waiting there just in case so I could be really quick. It's a kind of a dance you do in pre-production with the producer because they'll be wanting to know why you need all this already in the setup, but it works out. Of course, I have to adjust to how much money I have and make it work for the budget, but it's something I try and do as much as possible to be flexible. Yeah, it's so smart. I was wondering about how you handle it in pre-production in the conversations with the producers, because that tends to be where, especially in pre-pro, nobody wants to spend money, yeah. right? That Everybody wants to save it for yeah. production. I'm assuming that once you explain how the technique works and, and explain that it saves time mm -hmm. on set, which is way more expensive than time yeah. in pre-pro, that people would understand it. I'm, and I'm imagining you haven't gotten much pushback. No, and it. I think the thing is that, as you would know, in pre-production, you're always juggling the budget that you have. And so sometimes I could let something go and then put it 
into doing something like this or using cheaper lamps. You know, on Elvis, we used parkans. So, you know, instead of orbiters or, right. you know, we kind of juggled it to make it work for how much money we had. Right. And a technical question about the uh, the board op or the programmer. Are they doing lighting adjustments on the fly? As in, are there certain shots where they're improvising based on what the camera is doing? So you have to really synchronize that. Or is it usually stuff that's pre-planned? Like you sort of rehearse a move, what kind of shift the light needs yeah. to do and practice yeah, it a few times and then before you start doing It's definitely the latter. I would never let them go off on their okay. own rock and roll tangent, yeah. <laughs> you know, because they may be doing something that I don't like. But what I always would have it pre-planned and as much as possible. And then I have, you know, one of the dimmer board operators is with me, you know, on an iPad now. Most of the time they're on an LED right. setup, even though on Elvis it was a combination of LED and concert lighting. So we had to shuffle that a little right. bit. And sometimes I'll stand right next to them or get them to stand next to me and be going, now, you know, do a rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a little dance that we do, but I always make sure there's someone with me that is understands that and is experienced enough in doing it because you don't want it going crazy or someone just going off on their own tangent. God forbid. You mentioned in a previous interview, a uh, conversation that you had with a gaffer on a project where that gaffer had mentioned this epiphany that lighting on a larger scale for bigger projects essentially involves applying the same principles as smaller scale mm -hmm. movies, but just with yeah. more lights or just bigger spaces. Um, so could you elaborate on that perspective a little bit and, and talk about how that guides your approach to these larger productions that are a lot of big stage builds and large areas mm -hmm. that you have to light up? It was actually on Australia and it was my gaffer, Sean Conway, because it was my first big movie. And, and uh, the film before was like a $12 million film that I'd done. And then all of a sudden I'm on a $130 million film. And we were walking through, you know, talking about the sets together. And I was saying, oh, but, you know, we've got like 300 foot set to light. But he said, Mandy, it's just the same, but bigger. And as simple as that. And then that really just clicked in my mind that instead of two lamps for something on a smaller scale, I need 20 and I need 20 Ks instead of 5 Ks or to do something. And it's just making sure that uh, I have the stop that I need. And again, I would do tests, you know. I always test stuff or make sure I can come into the pre-light or do the pre-light myself so that I'm never stuck in a situation where I don't know what I'm going to do or I don't know if a situation comes up what I'm going to do. Because I've been on sets where the director has said, you know, I know this is day, but, hey, you know what, let's make it night. And I want to be able to go, yep, okay, I'll just one moment, you know, I'll just do this, 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 blah, blah. And so I use pre-production really well and make sure that I'm super prepared so that I nobody's waiting for me or I do set something up and it's wrong and I have to redo it. That would be my worst nightmare. Yeah, I can only imagine. Speaking of that kind of preparation work, one other thing we wanted to ask was about your collaboration with the production designer. So you had talked before on Elvis about integrating lighting into some, uh, not just lighting, but also cameras into some props that were on set. So concealing uh, uh, S60s within um, set pieces created by the art department to simulate vintage TV screens. But also, I know you put uh, Lexus 65 bodies inside old prop TV cameras so that those could be filmed, but they were also filming a perspective from within the camera. So can you talk a little bit about that collaboration with production designers and how that sort of looked for you on 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 Elvis, but also on other projects and what that time is spent in pre-production? Well, I think, first of all, the start of my talks of visual language with the director, 
And then straight away, I think it's very important for me to check in with the production designer and the costume designer, and I keep doing it in pre-production like every week, whether we have meetings or I just wander down myself to their department because things will come up. Like, for instance, we had to replicate the shots exactly from that TV studio and I knew that they were getting some old TV cameras. They were real. And so I would wander over and between us we just talked about gutting one and putting our camera in there to get exactly the right angle. But also I was looking at the shots and going, well, the lights are going to be in shot. I want to be able to control as much as I can. And for me that was going LED and then they would say, well, yeah, we'll build some housings for them or for instance, the ground rows, you know, like were a big one because the audience were all over those ground rows. And if we put tungsten lights in there, they'd all be getting burnt and, and it gets super hot. But also I couldn't control the colour as much. So we built the ground rows and we put the fixtures in there. So I think it's always like a back and forward that and a collaboration, you know. It's very important that myself and all the departments are constantly t- talking about things. And so sometimes I'll go to the makeup people, for instance, and say, this scene is going to be really warm light. It's going to be this colour. So I just want to make sure that you're okay with what you're doing there. And if you want me to shoot a test on the makeup in that lighting scenario or in a smaller set up and a small scale set up for a test, I'll do that for you. And I think that a lot of that comes from experience too, because I know that things that I'm doing like that are going to affect everybody and whether it's hard light or whether it's soft light. And so I just keep that dialogue going all the time. And of course, everything has to be run past the director. It's not like I'm going off again on my own. Like I'm making sure that all the things that I go to them with, I've run past the director because I don't want to go off and do something that they don't think is the correct way to do something or, you know, so it's like a secondary thing. Or we have meetings together, which is also great. Super brilliant. Yeah. I think what really interested me hearing you talk about it is that for aspiring cinematographers, I think it's sometimes hard to wrap one's head around when things scale up to this extent. How do you retain that far side key quality or how do you manage five cameras moving around and keeping all of your shots in line with your sensibility for lighting and the quality of light that you prefer. And I think when I heard that so much of that is done through a modern approach, like live programming and kind of treating it like theater and being very reactive and dialing everything in very precisely, totally made sense that that's one way to kind of keep that quality throughout. So Mandy, obviously we've touched a little bit on Elvis and we've even touched on Australia, but we were really interested to hear about just some of your experiences and insights from collaborating with such an incredible director and Boz Lerman throughout both of your careers. We'd love to just hear some of the early days, how you met, how that relationship formed and anything you want to share about that relationship. I've worked with Baz for 20 years. The first time was on a, a commercial for Chanel Number no. 5 with Nicole Kidman and it was actually not a commercial, it was a short film and uh, it was like a three-week shoot and, you know, it was like a big production and I just remember the first time we met, we, we started talking about photography and that we realised that we both were very much interested in still photography and film, obviously, but we started talking about art and we had this kind of conversation that kept going for a really long time. Then the next time we met, we talked about how we were going to approach the job. But he also is incredibly visual and he sees the movie in his head, you know, so it's about how... I can reproduce that vision that he has and I, and, and I love the challenge of that. 
and also he's a great collaborator. And the way he works with Catherine Martin, his wife, before he sees me, is they've already talked about, like, for instance, for Australia and Elvis, because they're both stories that are set in a time in history, the reference and the research has already been done. And so when I first met with Baz on Elvis, he had like a sizzle reel that that they put together and reference material. And so it's like he is really clear in the way that he describes things to me. We have a relationship now where I, because I've worked with him for so long, I understand the way he wants me to work. And he's like a conductor and he involves everybody. So there would be the core team together, like there would be Catherine Martin, myself, the editorial department, and then VFX. And then after that, my team start coming into these meetings and my grips and electrics and camera operators. And he has these sessions where he'll go through talking about the vision of the film and just involving everyone. And also he's great at rehearsing and blocking, you know, that when we did for instance, a concert sequence on Elvis, we were rehearsing. Austin was rehearsing for weeks, obviously months, but my team were there for weeks as well in pre I think they had four weeks prep. And we'd come in and we would rehearse with Austin so that we knew the choreography. I got them to all learn the songs so they knew the beats of the songs for how they were reacting. They all studied meticulously what we called the train spotting sequences, which were the sequences of the film that we were reproducing real footage. And so Baz is great at getting everybody there and talking with them, you know, and saying, Brett, the, the jolly grip, this, you, you need to be flying at this point of the movie and this is the drama of it. You know, we've, we've reproduced concert sequence. Now the drama part of the film, you got to fly. You know, he, he loves being involved in every aspect. Like I said, he's like a conductor and the musical instruments that are there on set, he loves being able to, because he has a, such a clear vision that that it's about involving everybody in that. And that's how he gets the best out of everyone, I think. And so we have a very quick shorthand now that we'll be on set and we'll see the same thing. And we'll, you know, we would have planned these two shots and then we'll look at each other and go, we really need to be have a camera over there, don't we? Yes. You know, that comes with, you know, working together for so long. I wanted to ask about those rehearsals on Elvis because it's something you had talked about before. I just wanted to hear more details about like what that looked like in pre-production because that seems quite rare to me to to have that opportunity to to be rehearsing with the crew. And I'm assuming with the gear, right? So at that point, you you sort of, you've already had your cameras picked out. You have your lenses, like all of that part of pre-pro is already already behind you and there's a certain chunk that's maybe close to the shoot what does the day-to-day of that rehearsal process look like for you and the crew it starts with just Baz and me and we have our stills cameras and we run around for instance when Austin was rehearsing something he and I would both we both have Leicas and we had also Artemis and just running around looking at angles during rehearsals and then start to get close to Austin. So we'd stay back at first and then the more we came in, the more we'd get close to him. So he got used to us being around, you know, not being afraid of a camera in his face, even though it was just Baz and I. Then the crew would come in and they would watch. And then the crew, my camera operators, with the dolly grips with them, would be start being on stage with, again, stills cameras or Artemis cameras, just recording video sections of on on that in that program, and then 
we would be doing, as the sets got built, we would rehearse on the sets, even if they weren't completely finished or not, even if the costumes weren't there. And it slowly progressed to like a dress rehearsal where the cranes would be there, the camp, the real cameras would be there. And we'd also did before that too, in part of our camera testing, we did some little concert setups with no set, like it was black and we just had the instruments and a tiny stage just to kind of start riffing with Austin and making him comfortable with us. And some of those sequences are in the movie. And right. so we would shoot them and we would shoot the costume and make the makeup and costume tests were always in little sets or versions of sets or backgrounds or things that the art department were testing out. And a lot of them are in the movie. Yeah, I love that. There's a bunch of uh, test footage and scout footage that we shot on the creator that's yeah. in the movie as yeah. well. So it's 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 such a fun thing. It's really amazing to have that opportunity. Like I imagine Baz, I'm sure, was able to sort of dictate the terms of what pre-production looks like on a movie like yeah. Elvis. I imagine that it's not it's not a fight that anyone needs to have to like carve out that time with the crew uh, to be able to come in. But typically it seems like something that would be hard to do because everybody's always everyone has their thing they have to prep, yeah. right? Every The sets need to be painted, the crew needs to prep the gear and so on. So just being able to find that time is, yeah, it's really precious and amazing. And I think it shows in the final film because it feels very meticulous. Yeah, and I think that's the way he works. You know, that's the way he always works. So he will have that in the time, you know, in the schedule of pre-production. Time for that is right. there. And that's like I was saying, my crew came on pretty early, four weeks of prep or something, the camera operators had and to to facilitate that and the other thing is it's about the performers too like it's just as important for Austin to feel comfortable with us and that we've all been together and he knows everybody by the time we start shooting and he knows that the crane is going to be whooshing around his head and he or he knows this is a handheld sequence and they're going to be dancing and sliding with him on the stage and so all the actors were very familiar with what was going on. Yeah, speaking of that, actually, I was really fascinated to hear about a technique you used where to keep performance continuous, which obviously, as you're saying, it's it's all about them feeling comfortable and them being able to keep their performance and keep the energy up. But there was a situation in which you actually, going back to programming, sort of lit and moved cameras throughout a set dynamically, even if they were different scenes from the film, in order to just follow the continuous action of the performance. And yeah, I was interested if you could tell us a bit about that experience, because I just think it's such a great example of the extent to which one can go to like preserve the sanctity of an actor's performance in the world that you're building. Yeah, again, it was part of the plan. For instance, when we did his first show at Vegas, it was a 20-minute long shot of five cameras rolling and we obviously did it again with the cameras in different positions but each time we did it we shot the whole 20 minutes like him walking from the back of the stage side of the stage on stage doing three four songs I think it was and then we'd start again with our different positions once we'd got that down pat but yeah so I had to plan for that to work for each of those and then wherever whichever direction we're facing I would change the lighting for you know for instance when we're behind him on stage I wouldn't have all the backlights on the back of him so that he would be front lit by the backlights and then I had three follow spots which I also instead of just one I had three so that when the camera would move around in front of him on the stage we didn't get a camera shadow so as the camera would come around the other follow spot would dim on and um, the other one go off so those kind of things I, I planned, but also the moving between sets and 
which we did quite a bit, or linking one set to another was very conscious and very, like sometimes they weren't even in the same place. So there was a transition that we'd have to work out had to be seamless between, for instance, Beale Street, where we built um, on a back lot four blocks of Beale Street, it was all one story. And then to move to the top story of Club Handy, which was an interior set, and have that connection between the two. We did quite a bit. We did during the day and we did at night a couple of times. That was all had to be worked out and planned so the lighting matched and the way the camera move was going to match and working with VFX on that. So I think one question that we love to ask cinematographers, directors, and it's an interesting one, is trying to walk us through what the transition was like from, in your case, you know, going from a $12 million picture or something of that scale to really scaling up to something like Australia and having to work with a $130 million budget. We'd love to hear kind of what that transition was like and how you navigated it. I think I just, it's also that saying, how do you need an elephant? One bite at a time. So when I'm doing, like when I was doing that big movie, I would just look at each part of that separately and not get overwhelmed with the whole picture. And you still approach, you would have more prep time, but then you go, okay, here's this part of the movie that we're doing. And then here's another part and there's this set and then there's another set. And then once you've kind of worked those things out, how do you get them to integrate and how do you maintain the same visual language throughout the movie? I take a lot of stills in pre-production on locations, for instance, and look at angles and look at the light and work out things from that sense, which I've always done on small films. But on a bigger film, yeah, I think it's, it is just breaking it up and being very meticulous about each section, but in pre-production on locations, for instance, and look at angles and look at the light and work out things from that sense, which I've always done on small films. But breaking it up and being very meticulous about each section, getting that right and making sure that each of the scenes and the lighting setups and the whole approach is seamless and, and has a flow. So, yeah, I suppose that's all I can say because like, it's like I was saying, it's just the same but it's bigger, really, and yeah. you have more time, you have more people to be able to get ready. I have to say, though, in my career and, you know, I don't know how many films I've shot, 22 movies or something, when I first started we always had more time to shoot and now I shoot, on big films, you shoot just as fast as when you were. I was on a small film with no money and one camera and running around. So I've seen that happen. That's why I say I'm as prepared as I can because I know that I have to work really quickly. And if we can get 30 shots a day on, on in a big machine of five cameras or whatever, I want to be able to do that. So how do I do that is being prepared and being having all my lights up, everybody being very, very familiar with what's going on. And I try and take now, I have my camera pros and my first ACs come on the scouts and they know what's going on. And you never have to turn up at a location and spend five minutes saying to the first AC, well, we're looking that way, then we're going to go there. We never look there, so you're going to be safe. I don't want to have those conversations. I think that bringing them early on, really helps and I'll sit and go through all my visual language notes with them and all my reference notes with all of my team. I mean, my approach is kind of something I've learned from Baz is about collaboration and getting people to work with you that want to show their best work and want to have ideas and to be part of the process and not just be told what to do 
point blank and not be involved and not understanding why we're doing something. So that that's a big part of my methodology now in how I work on a movie. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It's a luxury that a, working on a bigger production gives you, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, the choice to do it is so great. I love hearing some of these techniques of yours, like keeping all five cameras on the right side of the lighting and bringing your crew in and having them memorize the music uh, for the performances. It's it's just really cool the way that you work. Yeah, I love it. On our show in the past, we've interviewed some directors um, and and also some other DPs. We've discussed the role of the director a lot in the end and, and that collaboration specifically. A common theme that comes up is the idea of the role of the director as the tastemaker, sort of the individual with a unique identity, personality, viewpoint that they're bringing into any given project. And our role as the cinematographers to interpret and showcase that perspective, enhance, uplift, uh, support the vision. But also there's a, there is some element of bringing our own unique perspectives and taste into whatever project we work on. So we've talked about your collaboration with Baz, but we'd also be curious to hear about sort of bigger picture, like your process for grasping the core of a director's point of view in general, maybe other directors that you've worked with in other projects. How do you go about that, especially maybe if it's a director you haven't worked with before? So using that time and prepare to to cut to the heart of what is the point of view and what do I need to bring to this to support it, contribute to it and enhance it? I think it? that's exactly right. And in, in our job is a little bit as a chameleon because you have to work out pretty early on and I try and work it out in the first couple of meetings about what the director wants from me and, and whether they have like a very specific vision that they want me to replicate or, you know, because some directors have a really clear idea about cinematography, like Baz, for instance, like totally clear, every department, he super understanding of it already and can see it when you talk to him about technical things or about ideas in visual terms. And some directors, especially like you're saying, first-time directors will bring you on and say, look, I don't know what this film should look like. And then I think I have another job of working out how they see the story and just getting into their mind. For instance, when I was on Hidden Figures with Ted Melfi, that was his second film, and what we did together was we went through the script and we gave each scene a slug line so that it would say this is, it sometimes is one word, it was like defeat. And how do right. we express that? How do we lens it? How do we use the camera in this circumstance? How, how do we light it? How do we express that to an audience? Because our job as a cinematographer is to express emotion and to express atmosphere and express experiences to an audience. So I never come into a job and go, I've got these great ideas about how we're going to shoot this. Never. And then yeah. I also don't come in with like material either. I don't come in and go, I've got all these shots from another film. I think it should look like this. I never do that. I come in really open-minded and yeah. start the conversation from storytelling point of view. And then some directors will have a half an idea and say, I want this, but how do I get that? Or I really like the look of these lenses. I want to show you that because I think it's so it's always a juggle. And but as you say, Oren, it's really important to remember that it is the director's vision. It's not mine. Yeah. My job is to facilitate that for them, however they want me to do it. And however much they want me to be involved in their vision. And then I would, I expect them to give me the job because, you know, of my experience and my professionalism and talent. But working out how they want you to work with them happens in the first couple of weeks of pre-production, I think, is working that out. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's something that I've sort of switched on recently, actually, because on lower budget projects, indies, a lot of times when a DP comes in to interview, there is this expectation now. And I think this is maybe something that's more recent, but tell me if this if this is something that also existed when you were coming up in sort of lower budget projects. Nowadays, there is this expectation that the DP brings in a lookbook and brings in like their own sort of ideas and perspective on, well, here's how I think I would shoot it and so on. And for a while, you go along with it because that's maybe what's expected. But I've recently really been starting to think about exactly how you just phrased it, which is like, that's not my job. I don't think that's my job to bring in, I don't know, a prescribed approach to how to do the project. Like I want to hear from the director how they want to do it and learn what they need from me and learn what the collaboration will look like. So I try not to do that anymore. The lookbook thing, it's interesting to, to, to hear from your perspective that that's not, that's not something that you would consider part of the purview of, of the DP. No, either. because I also think I can do anything. Right. It's not that I have right. one kind of, I'm not a one trick pony or whatever, and I don't want to do something on the next film that is exactly what I did on the last film. But I have to say there are some DPs that have a style, you know, and they get hired because of their style and that that's another kind of way of working and there's nothing wrong with it and, and it's been around for a really long time. But I'm not that person. I, I'm someone who looks at each film completely differently and, and as a whole new entity in my approach. I think also that thing that you were saying that I've had people calling me who are working on low-budget films and saying, I want to do this lighting thing. The director keeps telling me it's not the right way to do it and I don't, he doesn't like it. But I said, just stop. It's the director's film. It's not yours. What you do have to do is work out what they want and give them that. And if you're not getting on or whatever, you just have to remember that they're your boss. And this is how the film industry has worked for the last 120 years or whatever, is that the director is the, the storyteller and, and the visionary, and, yeah. and you have to remember that. But you work with them however they want you to work. And, yeah, so it is hard. I know exactly what you're saying, and I used to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think another part of the job is us maybe sometimes figuring out how to help a director understand what they want. Like they'll, they maybe will have an idea, but not know how to manifest it or, or even sometimes how to describe it. Exactly. And in, in pre-production yeah. with, when I did Shattered Glass with Billy Ray, and that was his first movie, yeah. I took him into Panavision mm -hmm. and we set up a camera with lenses and I said, this is what these lenses do. And you tell me how you feel about it. Like, let's look at an right. image and here's anamorphic and here's a long lens and here's a wide angle lens. And this is a low depth of field and just got him to feel comfortable with making those decisions with me. And then we work together. So it's not like I have to say, I think this should be a 50 mil and it should be it's very cool and blah, blah. I wanted him to feel it. And it w I would do that again, you know, with directors that aren't really experienced and show them so they do understand why these decisions are made. Fascinating. Such, such a great insight. Yeah, it's, it's a perfect transition to a question that we had about lensing, which... I don't know, it's been incredible to follow the things that you've done with lensing and, you know, some examples like creating a custom Petzval lens for Mulan that covered the Alexa 65 sensor or designing a 2600 millimeter lens for capturing soldiers charging toward camera in Mulan. Also mention of employing both spherical and anamorphic on Elvis. I'm generally curious to hear what attracts you to anamorphic or what attracts you to spherical and how you make that decision on any given project. I think for Elvis, it was a it was a discussion about how to represent the different time periods. And we used spherical for the first part of his career up to Hollywood. 
And then we went anamorphic in the 70s because we felt that represented the 70s to us when people were going crazy with anamorphic lenses and zooms and it was being embraced with the, all the aberrations that they had. So I had all the aberrations put back into the lens. But whenever I do a movie, I always go in and sit with Dan Sasaki and the director. Like Baz came in with me to visit Dan. We talked about the script and um, then, you know, we said we want to show the different time periods and what are the lenses from this time and what did they use on these Hollywood pictures and what did they use on these documentaries. Like that's the way it is, was in the, done at Vegas and um, they did use anamorphic lenses and so we had our T-series to develop for that to, and had them expanded to fit on the 65. And, for instance, I think there's a... Because anamorphic has a particular look that you can dial in and out and it gives you aberrations of certain bouquet and things like that, that I look at just the different things that are offered up, what's right for the that particular film or like, for instance, on Elvis, we had two different lenses. And Milan, you know, we were shooting 65 because I wanted it to be epic. We had these big battle sequences and we're outside in these amazing mountainous vistas and so for me shooting 65 mil was the way to represent that in the best way and so it's all again it's storytelling like the last film I shot I shot on LF because I didn't need that kind of um look I didn't feel it was right but yeah it's again I'll I'll sit with Dan and say talk about story and I remember once actually on when I looked at one of the lenses or a couple of lenses for Milan when we were doing our exterior shots and I showed him a painting and I said, I know it's a painting, but for me this is the feeling of what I want to see. And he kind of interprets in a way that relates to him because he's an alchemist. So he will be looking at contrast and drop-off on the edges and colour saturation and how sharp they are and where the sharpness is in the lens. And so we talk about things like that. And, for instance, on tracks, I know that we ended up with G-series lenses because I liked the C-series, but I felt that they were not giving me enough detail. So he said the Gs are based on the Cs and I can detune them a little bit, but where do you, how do you want to frame the film? Like where do you want the penultimate focus point to be? Is it in the centre? Is it in thirds? So that's a discussion that we have very early on, like months. Whenever I find out I'm doing a film, I call him straight away and say, I want to come in and let's start talking. Because on Elvis and on Milan and on the film I just did, he built those lenses, whether he built them from scratch or he used existing lenses and developed them, whether he's adding glass or he's changing the contrast ratio of the lens or whatever. So I want to give him the time to be able to play and then he'll come. I'll come in and he'll have three examples of something to show me and I'll say, well, this is too far, this is not far enough or this is great but how about a bit more of this, you know, and it's like a, it's like a recipe. So we sit making a cake and whether it needs more flour and then it needs more water or it needs another egg or whatever and, and we work like that. And, and again, because I'm an artist and that I think is the most important part of my job, is a lot of it is yeah. an intuition thing and it comes from a feeling and it's not so much a technical mm. reason why I do something. It'll come from, it, does it feel right? Is it, is it the right thing for the story? Is it the right emotional, you know? like So that that I find is like, it's a tricky part of my job is interpreting art into technical. But 
art comes first and then technical comes after. Yeah, beautifully. I said. think that's the tension in cinematography, right? Like that's always there is is finding that balance, but it, the technical is supporting the art, right? So interesting. So Mandy, shifting gears a little bit from some of these amazing technical discussions to something a bit more just about kind of work-life balance. We, we were curious to hear when you're involved in projects like Elvis, for example, and you're on set for 93 days or some of these other shoots like the mountain between us and the grueling locations and the travel and things like that. We were curious to hear how over the course of your career, you've managed to balance the work of a cinematographer and the amount of time that you have to spend away from home and any guidance or advice you could offer in navigating that, you know, navigating the slow periods, the busy periods and anything you want to share on that. Well, I think if you're going to be a cinematographer and not shoot only in your hometown, TV shows or whatever you, you know, if you've decided to do what I do, you have to commit to that. You can't half-heartedly do it and you can't be resenting the decisions that you make either. You have to go in 110%. So part of my life, I'm lucky that I have had a, my husband decided to be full-time dad and they would travel with me when my daughter was young and then when they couldn't, we would thankfully for FaceTime and talk all the time and keep that communication going. And then when I come home, I spend quality time with them and especially with my daughter when she was young. You know, even if I was exhausted, I would read a book and do the bath time and whatever or take her to Disneyland on the weekend and or just kind of hang out and have the day in the park together. It's a juggle, yes, but I never also didn't want her to feel that I was compromising her life. I mean, my father travelled a lot and always and we have a great relationship and we still do um, because he didn't make it an issue. It was like dad's going to be away for two weeks and when he comes back we're going to do this or, you know, we're going to go on a holiday together, let's talk about something positive and this is what I do, this is mum's job and isn't it a great job that she has and it was always making it a positive thing and, and that's advice I always give to people because I have a lot of women talking to me about being a mother and how you work in this job. But I think you have to give 110% and you cannot be there regretting your decisions or having an, um, a partner who, is, I don't know how people deal with partners who don't go along with their lifestyle, but it's be very difficult. So uh, again, I'm lucky because that's my situation, but I, I just, I mean, my daughter's 25 now, we have a fantastic relationship. So it didn't ruin that for us, <laughs> me being away a lot or, or doing what I do. She's respectful of me and she's proud of what I've done and she wants to be in a career herself in the film industry so it's sort of that that's what I can say is that you know not to act like it, it is a problem no it makes total sense I mean it kind of leads into another question that we had which I'd love to hear your perspective on confidence specifically and you know just fully showing up and not really letting adversity or people doubting you or challenges that you face with the logistics of a shoot with long projects, navigating, balancing family and things like that. So anything you could speak on, on confidence and how that's helped you through your career and helped you get to where you are now? I have to say it's the way that I've been brought up because when I first started and there was no women shooting films and I had to step into a, being an AC when there was no women in the camera department and I did some, some crew people gave me a hard time or doubted my abilities or whatever. But I was really passionate about what I wanted to do and I knew that I could do it and then I'd have to prove it. I knew I'd have to prove that I could carry the gear, I could manage a 
crew of 200 people or I could. And I think that sort of also is helped by experience, I have to say, because now, you know, like I said to you, I very confidently can say I could do anything like I could. Any genre, any challenge you throw at me, you know, in terms of my job, I feel very confident that I could work something out or, you know, get the director's vision on the screen. But that comes with experience because I am experienced and I've been in a lot of completely different situations and had to deal with them in different ways and that's taught me things. So I think it's about not being afraid to try things and and it's about respecting people and so you are respected by other people and about being humble in certain situations and not aggressive and and also just treating people well and being a good person and and I think a lot of that helps with your confidence because if you get people to trust and respect you then you've already gone a really long way yeah that's um that's amazing and it's I think it's something that a lot of people especially starting out grapple with a little bit is because it's hard to feel self-confident when you're starting out when you're young you don't have the experience yet it really just comes with time. I mean, even I haven't been doing this very long, but over the the, the course of the, the 13, 14 years I have, like you just sort of feel it increase with time and with those experiences. So yeah, it's really well said. So Mandy, we'd love to hear about some of the sources of inspiration for cinematographers like yourself. And you mentioned before your admiration for cinematographers like Robbie Mueller and directors like Wim Wenders. And I don't know, Robbie Mueller is a absolute favorite of mine. Paris, Texas is one of my favorite films. And we're just interested to hear about any early inspiration, maybe photographers, artists in Australia, or anything you want to share about that. My mother used to take me to art galleries from when I was a toddler because she was always interested in art and then cinema from a very early age. And my dad used to take me to see foreign language films, you know, in this little state theatre that showed really obscure movies. And so I think that I had a really broad kind of introduction to art in that way. And I think that some someone like Robbie Mueller, because I'd been watching a lot of American films and a lot of Australian films, and he, to me, had a completely different eye than anything I'd seen at the time. And so I respected him for that. And then I would study his work and what he was doing And when I was really young and when I was an assistant. And also, I just think there's a lot of Australian artists that were an influence to me too, especially when I was doing Australia, like Arthur Boyd and and Albert Tucker and artists from mid-century that would paint the outback and the way they saw the outback. And that was a big influence on me. But I also just think you can't not keep looking at the world, you know, like I've been a cafe and I see the way the light's coming in or I'd go to a location and and I would go like certain different times of day to see how it feels at different times of day and that influences what I how I'm going to reproduce that and it's just with everything these things have to keep your eyes open all the time that's such a great point I mean sometimes it's not even a reference or a photographer it's just the mood of a natural encounter with light yeah I don't know it's beautiful yeah being aware of the world and the environment I couldn't agree more so Mandy, we're on our final question. Thank you again for sharing your uh, knowledge and experience with us. This has been a real pleasure. We wanted to ask you about one recent experience that you had, which is that earlier this year, you won the ASC award for your work on Elvis, uh, also becoming the first woman ever to win that award. I had the very distinct pleasure to be in the room when that happened. And the atmosphere was just incredible. Like everybody, I think all night anticipating like, is Mandy going to do it? Is Mandy going to do it? And then, and then when it, when they called your name, everyone just leapt to their feet. Like 
everyone was just uproariously applauding and so happy. I think everybody's rooting for you. So can you give us a bit of a peek behind the curtain into the experience of sort of awards season in general and then what it felt like to get that uh, recognition from your peers mm-hmm. at the ASC? Well, I've been shooting for a really long time, you know, 30 years. And so to get to that moment and to be presenting the first woman to win that award was very, very special to me. And also I just kept thinking it wasn't going to happen. And the recognition of my peers was incredibly important. And as you say, like the reaction of people on the day. But also it's to me it's a door opening for other kind of glass ceiling breakers, however you want to say it, because... Our industry has been really dominated by men and now I feel like that is one step into getting us more diverse and more open to looking at other people's work because there's been great work done all over the world, you know, in different cultures and in different ways and I'm hoping that that was just a big step forward. But it was very incredibly special and emotional for me because I have been working all this time and to be recognised like that. Um, the whole award season was crazy but fun. And to be on that journey with Baz started at Camera Marge and he is a really fun partner to have on the in these situations because he makes the most of it and he makes it a positive experience. And, and he taught me a lot about being prepared for interviews and, and how to answer questions and, you know, talk about our work together. And so that was a great learning curve for me. And I had a ball. I had a really great time. And to wear amazing dresses, you know, for these events. Yeah, yeah. of course. Very important part of it, as we know. uh, Yeah, no, it's so great to hear that. I think it's actually kind of uh, very refreshing to hear somebody talk positively positively about about that experience, because I think sometimes it might be it's hard for us as sort of brooding artists to, you know, take a step back and maybe appreciate being appreciated for our work. So I think that's that's really wonderful to hear and, and such a great uh, note to uh, to end things thank on. You. So yeah, thanks for sharing thank that. You. So deserved. Mandy, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you for all your incredible insights and thank you for your work. And we're just so excited for our listeners to hear this and for us to follow along and watch all the amazing work that's coming down the pipeline. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Yeah, of course. Wonderful. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Oren Sofer, and David Kruta, with original music by One Wave. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the salon community for sourcing topics for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks. <laughs>